Hello everyone, my name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Don't forget to do that. Um, I listen to Don Raffle, Lance Olson, and one or two others, people not known to me, and so I'd have to go back and tell you the names, but they were recent ones, you know, the last couple episodes. No, very cool. Now, you, you probably, uh, if you don't know Lance, you know of Lance, right? I know Lance very well. We're friends and collaborators. Yeah. And you collaborated with his wife, right? Yeah, many times. So they are people who um, I've probably known them, I guess, almost 20 years now. Wow. Yeah. So you you look like somebody who graduated from college about 10 years ago. So oh, I've worked at elementary school or something. <laughs> I worked at Lake Forest College for 21 years, but I was 26 when I started here. So wow, 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 wow! All right, listen, let's get started. Uh, I, I've, I've got like a canned intro. I'm going to introduce you, um, and um, I'll, I'm going to jump right into the first question. Sounds good. All right. Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of But I Digress. And today I'm excited to be digressing with Davis Schneiderman, who, from what I can tell, has been everywhere and done everything. His works include the novels Drain, the Dead Slash Books trilogy, a blank novel called, um, appropriately enough, Blank, a novel that includes audio from DJ Spooky. Um, and I want to talk more about that topic later. Um, and then Sick. Um, SIC, uh, another collaboration that includes images uh, from Andy Olson and audio from Illegal Arts Acts, O Astro, Steinsky, Yeah Big, and Girl Talk. Um, Schneiderman's work has also appeared in numerous publications, including Fiction International, the Chicago Tribune, the Iowa Review, Triquarterly, and Exquisite Corpse. He blogs for the Huffington Post and is a contributing editor for The Nervous Breakdown. Finally, and uh, as uh, the the last preface before we actually start talking, Davis is professor of English and Krebs provost and dean of the faculty at Lake Forest College in Illinois. Davis, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. And I have to say just how honored and delighted I am. And also this, I think, will probably be one of the topics we get to. Only some of those things you said about me are actually true because I realize my digital signature is sort of diffuse throughout the internet. So I don't think, for instance, all of those artists actually appeared when we did sick. You know, certain things started to happen and then stopped happening. Um, I haven't done anything for the nervous breakdown in a long time, but I once did. I just have like the body of Osiris, like all these little bits about me everywhere and they're not all correct, but that's okay. Okay, well, you know what, I mean, um, it's up to uh, uh, caveat auditor. Yeah, um, that's right. Love it. Um, uh, I guess the first question I have, I mean, you, you've spent a huge chunk of your life in academia, for, uh, not, not just as a student, but obviously now you're uh, a, a, a dean, um, uh, which, you know, uh, is, is a big deal. Um, and so I guess... Uh, how did you settle on this as being the sort of the central economic locus uh, of your professional life? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I probably stumbled into it a little more than anything. One thing to know about me is this is really my 
sort of second career, although my first one was brief and um, happened for just about six months when I was 17. And what was that? that? What was that? I wanted to be a chef and I went to the Culinary Institute of America in upstate New York, the place to go, the CIA. I have a very good friend who made that her, her second career. Yeah. Um, and she was an accountant and now she's much, 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 much happier as a chef. So my, my experience that led me there was being a line cook at the Golden Corral outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania when I was a boy. And I just thought, gosh, I don't want to do any of the things that adults are telling me I should do, like go to college and get a job. I'll do something creative and different. And I kind of like cooking, but I didn't really know the first thing about what that industry was. I love to cook, but I quickly decided no. So I left after six months, kind of found my way to Penn State, where I didn't want to go originally, but that was the place that was left open to me. Dabbled in journalism. I worked at the uh, newspaper there, thought for four seconds about taking a business course because my father wanted me to do so. And somewhere along the line, ended up an English major. But I don't think I even realized until I graduated that, oh, like I could go to graduate school. I could hide from the world for a couple more years. And so I went and got an MA. And somewhere along the line, I thought, well, maybe I'll just keep doing this and I'll apply for a PhD. But it wasn't even until a little bit into that that I thought, oh, like there could be a career here. I could do something with this. But it took years of sort of slow churning rumbling of um, reading and thinking about literature to decide it was more than a digression or a distraction. And it was central. So, you know, I mean, you're obviously... And 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 we can get into this. I'm I'm very interested to to hear about what you think the role of literature is in the world and the role of writers and what writers <laughs> should do. Um, but you obviously <laughs> so you ignored the clarion call of business school and you ignored the clarion call of whatever bright shiny objects people were shining in your face, but. You still, you know, so 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 you you understood. Okay, somehow I have to make a living. Why this, and why did you think that would be a good partnership for your writing soul? Yeah, I I love that question, and I think sometimes my own motives, even decades later, are kind of inscrutable to me. And I don't know if I had an aha moment. You know, there wasn't sudden enlightenment that I'm going to do this. And the odds of one getting a job a professor job in the humanities are, you know, slim to none in a place that you actually want to work at in a part of the country that you'd like to live in and in an institution whose values align with your own. So it was more like a series of small decisions. Read this book, take that class, think about this thing for a while, sort of shut a number of doors behind me that I didn't even realize were shutting, maybe opened a few and led me to the point of saying, okay, teaching. I kind of like teaching, and so let me now try to kind of apply for jobs, and that is um, a long and separate digressive story, but it ended up in a position here in the Midwest. I grew up in the East Coast. I'd never been north of Chicago to a school I knew nothing about, and I thought, I don't know. I don't know what this is like, but it's become home. The people are home. The community is home. I believe in the mission, um, but that is a rare and privileged feeling. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it certainly is. Um, but it also, and you know, I'm happy for you. And it sounds like um, it's a it's a really good fit for you and for the school. Um, but I, I, and and this isn't necessary. I mean, what impresses me is 
you didn't think to yourself, but you know, I don't know how long it'll take me to save for the Ferrari. No, definitely not. Um, first of all, I have a beat up Honda Accord that's about 10, 12 years old and I'll drive it until the grave. You know, um, I'm not a person who would ever want to save for the Ferrari. But I did, I did not early on think about the economics of it because that's really uh-huh. what asking, right? I, I, I guess I had all those 20 something delusions of being a writer and making a living of it. But I had enough sense to realize that that was just um, pie in the sky. And so I better do something else. And along the way, the something else came to carry its own meaning that supplanted some of those um, early 20s dreams that were pie in the sky to begin with. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, one of the things that I hope this podcast, you know, accomplishes is encourages people um, for whom the universe of writing is kind of a, a mystery, both in terms of the mechanics of it and the finances of it, to, to feel like it's more approachable, but also realistically, right? Um, and, and, and so at what point did you kind of, did you get something published and, you know, um, you got $100 and you were like, wait, that's it? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because early on, one of my first novels that I had written largely in graduate school, and if I were to go back to it today, I would think, boy, this is basically completely unpublishable. unpublishable. You know, there's a small press with seven people that might like to read this book, but I didn't realize that at the time that I spent years working on it. And a fairly well-known small press that means something in the world of sort of academic small presses, I sent in a sample they asked me to see the manuscript and I remember saying to my my then wife or my my current wife but we were just married at the time like oh it's really happening you know it felt like I got this email in you know 1998 or something and wow my whole world is going to change but I had such a strange sense of what the literary universe was and even if this book didn't happen with this press but if it had it would have been a drop in a large ocean of sort of nothingness so I had to get rid of all those illusions over time. And some of it is just life takes you in other directions. But I also tried to make a shift for myself. I realized somewhere along the line that wanting things is the worst reason to be a writer or to do anything creative. And you got to kind of try to make that dormant or exhaust that feeling as much as possible. Yeah, the more I, I the more of these podcasts I do, the, the, the more I think about the role of Buddhism. Because you have to yeah. let go. Yeah, if you see the novel in the road, you know, kill the novel, that sort of thing. I I do believe that there are so many people who are so invested in what is essentially a low stakes enterprise that will end the same way whether you publish 17 small press books or no small press books, you know, it all ends in kind of anonymity and obsolescence. And so we have to embrace that on some level. So... Now, you somewhere I read, you described yourself as a multimedia writer. And I'd love to know what you think that means or what you mean by that, um, why it's important, and how does that connect to the life of a writer today? Yeah, I never wanted to be limited to a particular genre, although I primarily write fiction. 
And I didn't want to be limited to a particular modality. So in the early days of the internet, I started to play around with, I guess, electronic writing, as it might be what was called for a time, collaborations with others, playing with um, text, making videos. Recently, I had a piece appear in a conceptualism book from the University of Alabama that is effectively a drone video I made of my family for a thing I did with the Chicago Humanities Festival some years ago, but I got a drone firm to fill us and film us and I edited it all together. I just like to do things that are fun and interesting and involve other people and are collaborative. And that's the point. What happens to it afterward is almost secondary for me. Although I recognize that it took me a long time to enter into this sort of, you know, um, the Zen state of that's okay. But I do really feel it. I think for some years I was trying to convince myself that it was okay to feel it. And I didn't really feel it, but I do now. And so I never wanted to just be doing one thing. And I recognize as a career, that's a mistake, right? If you do too many things, people don't really know what to do with you. And then you seem a little bit like a dilettante and nobody can figure out what you're actually doing. But since I decided to take those careerist aspirations and put them over here, that's okay. That's okay by me. So, you know, the thing that jumps out to me about um, multimedia um, mm -hmm. is, you know, where does the where does the writing stop and the visual come in? And I mean, I wouldn't be if I were asking this of a TV or a film writer, um, yeah. I, 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 it would be idiotic. But I'm, I'm asking it of a fiction writer. So how, how do you see those worlds connecting in a meaningful way? Um, which, which two worlds? The world of writing and the world of other media? Yeah. Well, to me, they're all, they're all part of the same creative impulse. But I'm not fool enough to say that it's the same skill set to be a writer for a Netflix show as it is to be a writer of a small press novel, as it is to um, be a filmmaker. I mean, those are all very different skills. And I'm not a master of most of the things that I play around in. But at the same time, isn't it wonderful that we all have these devices in our pocket that are more powerful than what we use to send people to the moon in 1969? And why shouldn't we play with all of them? I mean, there's a dark side to that. Everybody, it's you know Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Everybody can, can do whatever they want at any time. And there's a challenge there. But I love the idea of trying to fracture or upend or put little chinks in narrative structures um, just by playing around in them, by intervening in them. And sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I fail completely. But um, I never liked when people said, you shouldn't do that, you know, don't do that. Yeah. Um, now you also, and I feel like this is closely connected, you have an intense interest in collaboration, which yeah. I find unusual for fiction writers, less so, or maybe even actually not at all so for screenwriters and uh, you know other sort of visual writers. Um, interestingly enough, I think maybe poets are almost more open to collaboration than most fiction writers. Um, and I find, I have found in my life that um, painters, sculptors, are very collaborative, uh, or at least they like talking to writers. But like, how do you see? Um, what, what do you what do you find appealing in collaboration? 
Yeah, I mean, everything is collaboration, right? You're not born knowing how to speak or how to use language. You get it from other people. And I know that sounds a little bit glib. But in my scholarly career, I have been for a long time a scholar of the writer William Burroughs. And I've been particularly interested in collaborations that Burroughs did with an artist named Brian Geisen. And one of their projects is a book called The Third Mind. The idea being that when two people collaborate, two minds, they produce a third mind, right? Something new and interesting emerges. The book that they did came out in the 70s, is out of print, and I've been working with a collaborator named Marcus Boone and University of Minnesota Press and the Burroughs Estate for a long time and trying to bring back this book as it was originally meant to be published and was aborted at the time. But I always felt in that idea that my words aren't my own. You know, I'm borrowing them. I'm borrowing them from the TV. I'm borrowing them from the radio. I'm borrowing them from you. I'm borrowing them from Lance Olson. I'm borrowing them from other books. And I'm putting them in a cement mixer and I'm mixing them around. So even when I'm a solitary writer, I'm already collaborating. So it just became obvious to me one day that I can collaborate with people who aren't with me in the text around me. Or I could say, Michael, want to write a story together? Like, let's just do it. Like, let's throw sentences back and forth. And often I would create machines. You know, here's the concept. Let's write the story backwards. You write the last sentence, I'll write the second to last sentence. Then you do the third to last sentence, you know, anti-penultimate up until the end. I think often giving a structure or a form to a collaboration is a way to just get people going. Some collaborations are fantastic and some are terribly frustrating, just like people and books. And so the thing that leaps to my mind immediately is, I mean, it's rare. So when you talk about, when you, when you said the third mind, mm -hmm. I, I, I know this is gonna, this is incredibly prosaic, but I immediately thought of Lennon and McCartney because Lennon and McCartney together were very different um, artists than John Lennon when he went out on his own and Paul McCartney as well. And, and not to diminish them, individually, but together they were a third mind, I thought. Definitely. But but for every one of the and, and their partnership lasted, you know, 15 years, right? From when, you know, from when they first met until the band actually broke up, you know, um, uh, that's a long time uh, for a writing partnership um, without ego getting in the way. And by ego, I, I just, I, I don't mean like, oh, I want to be more important than you, but rather I want to shine. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that a great deal of the writer's instinct to write comes from, I have a story to tell rather than I have a story to tell, yeah. right? I have, a, I have a point of view. I have something I want to share. When you enter into a collaboration, you can still feel that way and you can, and, 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 but at, at some point, you know, it's your joint project that you're presenting to the world and whether I'm talking economically or even just, you know, um, what 10 or 15 or 100 readers you can put this in front of, um, you're effacing yourself to a certain extent because you're saying this is our, this is our vision, please enjoy. How do you, how do you, how do you manage that? Well, and you know, uh, thinking of Lennon McCartney, I was just thinking about sometimes I believe, you may know more about this than I do, I guess a song yesterday is a good example. My understanding, that's Paul's song, but John got publishing rights on it because the agreement was everything one of us does, we do together. And there's right, right. So, well, I, I, no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, 
I would say that if you took the entirety of their oeuvre as the Beatles, yeah, um, that would probably be the case for you know eighty percent of the songs. Right. But even in those songs, where one of them was the predominant writer, uh, so um, uh, in the case of yesterday, McCartney came. You know, McCartney woke up with the tune in his head and was so sure that it was a standard that he kept asking people, you know, where have you heard this? Where is this from? And everyone was like, nowhere, Paul. Uh, but um, man, it's yours. When he first started producing the song, or, you know, putting it, you know, taping it, there were nonsense lyrics. Scrambled eggs, right? Scrambled, that's right. Eggs, yeah. That's right. Uh, you, you, you know more than you let on. See, this is the, this is the problem with people like you. <laughs> you, um, uh, you're, you're, uh, but I know, I know less than you think I know. I may know more than I let on, but I know. Right, right, right. No, um, and so um, they would. I, I, I don't know specific lines, but I do know that there were, you know, there were times when you know he would write ninety percent of the song. In this case, he had all the music and some of the lyrics, but I mean, it was Lennon who. Made suggestions, where he would yeah. make suggestions on 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 on, on Lennon's songs. So, and yeah, I mean, look, you're a writer, you know the value. How, how important, like, one word can make or break but, a poem. No, this a is what I'm getting at. So, my model isn't so much Lennon McCartney, although I admire and like many, many Beatles songs. I'm a big Grateful Dead fan, and I love okay. I love improvised music. And the idea there is we're all playing at the same time and we're all doing our own thing and we're all listening to each other. And in that listening, we're creating something spontaneous of the moment. And ideally there's a sort of ego death, right? Or a suppression of the ego that happens. Um, first novel I ever wrote was with a writer named Carlos Hernandez who has some really great books out from an imprint of Disney Hyperion. We were in graduate school together. And we um, entered a contest and we wrote a novel in three days, sort of um, in, we, we lived together for three, three days and sort of had this machine and we would spend an hour writing and then we would send the other person the text and then you could unwrite, you could edit, you could remove, you could cut apart. And we had a whole structure. And at the end of this three days, we had a book called Abyssinarium published by um, Chiasmus Press, which is Lydia Yuknovich, if you know her, a fantastic writer. This is a long mm -hmm. time ago. And I was like, that is so exciting. It was the most like intensely joyous three days. I felt like I was playing improvised music with somebody awesome and learning from them and, and feeding off them. But it was never about the publishing royalties on the tail end. Right. And I think that I, I once spoke to um, a finance guy. I met, uh, I had many, many, many years ago, a restaurant in France and um uh, with uh, my um, uh, with with, with uh, one of my wife my wife at the time uh, who was American and we had decided that we wanted to um, sell the restaurant and, and move back to the United States um, and um, so we I was just chatting up this very wealthy um, private banker and he knew I was also a writer. Um, and he was more interested, as it turned out, in the writing than 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 in the restaurant. Um, yeah. But and 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 he said so. So let me get this straight. If I were to publish you, and you know, ensure that you sold a hundred thousand copies, but you didn't make a nickel, that would be okay with you. And I said, mm, yeah, because 
I wanted my book out. Yeah. And he said, I love you writers. I love you guys. You guys don't care about money. That's awesome for me. But of course, he, right. there was no ever any follow through on that. Uh, but it, it kind of made me realize on a, on a certain level that there, 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 there's such a um, uh, disequilibrium in, in, on the economics yeah. between the writer and the publisher. But of course, one of, um, one of my um, uh, themes that I come back to again and again in this podcast is just the, the incredibly fucked up nature of the publishing industry. Um, but even for its own sake, I mean, I wouldn't want to be a publisher but if I wanted to make money anyway. Um, but. Now, the idea of like the, you know, the artsy fartsy romantic intellectual not caring about a dime is also a romantic myth that's really damaging because so many young people get into this business with the idea that they'll write poetry in their garret and they'll be discovered and it'll all be wonderful. And then they're put up against the real economic impacts of those decisions, right? Student loans, um, debt to get an MFA, um, the challenges of the academic job market, the inability of when you get your book taken up by a publisher to have any real promotion about it. And it ends in sort of, you know, a series of terrible disappointments. So it's equally problematic to just say money don't matter at all, right? That's the great challenge of the thing. Well, money don't matter at all if you have money. Yeah, right. <laughs> but and so I, I make a living as a professor and now as, you know, the provost and the dean of the faculty here because my writing will never pay the bills. The question is, how has my interest in writing changed over um, the period of time of doing other things? Then you get into that argument of, you know, the purity. Are you going to be somebody who turns down all those other opportunities in so much as they come and says, I'm doing my thing. And like, if it's just me and, a, you know, a tin can to bang on, that's OK. I think that is a really hard posture to maintain over the decades. So, you know, if you lived in a world where, um, and I mean, so you do actually, <laughs> you live in a world where uh, to a certain extent, your contributions to society um, uh, allow you to share in some of the bounty of this society, right? So, but your contribution is you help teach young minds. Right. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, sort of the the, the wise fathers who uh, run the um, the world of academia hope that you will influence them in such a way that they will be very good um, on their feet and very productive members and hopefully of society and hopefully not writers. Um, but this is sort of like, because I used to imagine myself, you know, in prehistoric, prehistoric times, if, if it were me, if I were still me, right? Um, not a very good hunter, um, <laughs> not a very good gatherer, um, not really a fighter. Um, what do I have to give? I mean, I'd have to kind of do some of those things, I suppose. But right, if, a, if a mammoth comes, are you just gonna run the other way? Or you yo, for sure. Oh, I, I'm running for sure. Sabertooth um, tiger, I'm out of here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, but, but I, but, I, but I tell a good story, right? So do I tell a good enough story that the yeah. other members of the clan are, are going to share some of that, you know, hunk of, you know, uh, downed woolly mammoth that, that, you know, they're cooking over the fire? Um, and 
that's kind of been my uh, my way of imagining it. And then when I when I, when I, when I when I think about you, I think you know probably I have to do some of that hunting and gathering after all. Yeah. Well, I like the telling story things. Um, hey, everybody, I, I was over that hill talking to some of the Neanderthals, and I just don't think they're going to make it. You know, I just don't think they're cut out for this thing. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, you you know, I have a family. Um, I got to provide for them. Um, my, my wife works as well. She's in uh, was a journalist at the Tribune for a number of years. She does theater. And I think we both are very practical people. We often talk about how we'll spend a lot of time deciding before we make you know, a $300 purchase. None of us are splurgers ever. And I've always been sort of shoring up against my own ruin to quote from um, the, the, the poet, because you never know where life is gonna take you. And I would not want to sacrifice you know, food on the table for a romantic dream that I recognize as um, a lot of um, puffed air coming out of a pipe. I don't um, think the idea of the writer solitary um, putting themselves in a situation of sort of great deliberate economic disadvantage is quite as noble as um, people make it out to be because it's also part of that same complex that would say, yeah, you know, go, go to graduate school, right? There's no jobs for you, but go to graduate school, spend a couple of years getting an MFA which I think is right for some people, but I think for a lot of people who end up doing it, it's not right for them because they believe they are going to rise above the statistic and end up with the dream book deal or the dream job. And when that doesn't happen, um, you know, now they're in their thirties and what have they done, right? And I don't mean to suggest one has to do things to be productive, but I've just met a lot of people who aren't happy with the way it all turned out. And um, that's, so that's terrible. Well, I mean, why is writing different than, say, coming back to restaurants? I mean, everyone told me, you know, um, uh, 99 out of 98 restaurants fail in their first yeah. year. Right? 98% in their first year. That's what I always used to hear. I went ahead and did it anyway. And I mean, a lot of people go ahead and do it anyway, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot, and there are a lot of restaurants that, seem to exist right <laughs> yeah, they may change ownership every six months and we don't know but um and we don't know what their finances are like but my point is entrepreneurship um has the same risks i mean what we call classical entrepreneurship right but, why is writing so different i think because at its worst the industry and what it encourages can be a type of intense solipsism or in intense, as I've heard you talk about in other episodes of your podcast, the kind of social media aspect of it, have the platform and the, the painful building of the platform and the maintaining of the platform comes to supplant the thing you're doing. As somebody with a culinary interest, I didn't go and open a restaurant, but I certainly thought about it when I was young. I feel like when you do that, um, risks there are and rewards aplenty, you are entering into this kind of immediacy with your customer, right? Or the person you're serving from. That's what I always loved about food. You make the food, somebody eats the food and they say great, or they say terrible, but you, there's a commerce between you, right? All of a sudden there's this connection and it's happening now. The distance between me typing out stuff on my computer and you may be finding it years from now 
there's a lot of daylight between those, right? And so the time to satisfaction is more challenged. And so we build in this idea that the harder it is to do the thing, the more cultural capital you amass by just like, now here I am shivering with no heat, but I've written this poem. You know, I, I think all of that is a really foolish way of thinking about human existence. I mean, we, we're, we're sort of actually uh, ignoring a, a significant, I just realized this, uh, a significant um, element or uh, factor, which is sex. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that the same dynamic exists for um, women who want to be writers. I mean, I don't think that part of the female fantasy of having a first novel published is that then this really gorgeous guy is going to come up and want to go have sex with them. But I, I you know, I, I can't tell you the number of times I thought about, you know, when my first book came up and I had a reading, you know, that then I would meet this gorgeous woman who would want, uh, who, who would come to the reading. A, a gorgeous woman would just kind of show up at the reading because if, I, that never even occurred to me why she would be there. But the point was, yeah. she would be there and fall in love with me through my writing and we would we would go and make it. Um, and, 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 but I think that that is like a huge factor for why men, uh, heterosexual men, maybe pansexual men, like why, why one of the impulses is get laid. That's so interesting because I guess I would say maybe pick up a guitar if you want to do that, but um, it is never. That <laughs> yeah, never no, I'm saying it's realistic. I just think that it's there. Yeah. That never occurred to me. Now, I've been married to my wife for over 20 years. We started dating in college. And so from the time I was a writer, I was always in a very um, solid and loving and wonderful relationship. But it never occurred to me that my work is a thing to entice you or entice others. And that's why I think of it a little differently. I'm actually, I know this sounds almost ridiculous when you say it, but I've never wanted the sort of padding on the ego for doing it. I'm kind of like uncomfortable when people say, you know, that's, that's so wonderful. If you like it, great, but it's words on a page. It's not me. It's really, you're not getting anything authentic about me. You're um, interacting with the thing that I've made, which is full of falsity and fiction and prevarication and equivocation and lies. And I'm not trying to get you to see the sort of, um, you know, the, the guitarist who's playing you this meaningful song. I'm trying to just, uh, I guess, in a kind of Kafka way, arrange words on a page that um, entrap and ensnare you and confuse you. So is there, I mean, you, the work that you do um, is clearly not meant to attempt to seduce the masses. No. Um, is there a part of you that wants to reach more people or are you content with the hundred or thousand or however many people it is that over the course of your career you have touched? It's such a complicated question and I think it's changed for me over the years because when I was younger and certainly when I was in graduate school I did have to some extent these dreams you know that maybe different dreams than yours but I would make a living solely as a writer 
so many writers I know, even writers I really admire, the part of what they have to do to support that writing, right, to be viable in the marketplace has become really difficult for me to think of as a useful way to spend my time. I don't think that I'm J.D. Salinger or Thomas Pynchon, and I don't think those two people could probably be those people if they were entering the publishing industry now. But it's like this joke I sometimes tell, you know, I went for my annual physical and the doctor said, bad news, you only have decades to live. It's like, I don't have that much time and I don't want to spend that time platforming myself. Maybe I would change if I had the right project in the future. And I don't want to spend that time worrying about um, how many people are reading the thing. Am I delighted when somebody reads it? Sure, I'm happy. And I, am I pleased when somebody says, I really like this or this meant something to me where I get a smile on someone's face. Yes, but none of that can be the motivation. When that becomes the motivation, the enterprise has been corrupted, like completely corrupted for me. So that makes total sense. Um, and even someone um, like myself who still uh, allows myself the illusion that one day, maybe five or 6,000 people will, will read my book. Um, I don't let that, I don't think about that when I'm actually writing. In fact, one, um, <laughs> when my first book was published um, by Knopf, um, I, I met with uh, my agent at the time and um, she shared with me the wonderful news that they were, they were, they were the initial print run was 5,000. And I said, that's all? And, and she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I mean, my understanding is no one's going to pick up the paperback rights if I don't sell at least 10,000. And she looked at me with like bulging eyes and said, have you read what you write? <laughs> um, right. So, uh, you know, clearly what I write and the intention for fame and glory are, 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 are not in sync. And I'm okay with that. Um, but um, that's good. Yeah, a certain amount of self-knowledge helps to preserve the sanity. Um, but so um, we were introduced by John Madera. Yeah. Who wears many hats. Uh, he's a, a, a publisher. He's uh, a, a publicist for writers that he doesn't publish. He's a teacher. Um, what's your connection to John? John is a good literary citizen. You know, I think John is somebody I admire to, to no end. And um, I have hired him to work as a, a publicist. And in fact, um, for the short story collection I'm coming out now, which is mine and largely collaborative short stories with other people. And you might say, well, wait, didn't this guy just spend 10 minutes telling me how he doesn't care about anything, but he's hired a publicist? First of all, um, that's a fair question. Second of all, <laughs> I'm interested in connecting with interesting people, right? So this is really fun for me. Like this is more, this is as fun for me talking with you and learning about you and and discovering your podcast, which I'm now a fan of, as I was telling you before we started recording, that's the outcome for me, right? And I told John when we started to work together on this, I'm just interested in connecting because one of the things I haven't had as much time to do in my administrator role, which is um, pretty much all consuming, is connect with the same way. I'm not as in touch with the cool podcasts or the interesting literary journals that are around just because um, as David Shields once told me, life conspires to stop you from writing. And he's right mm -hmm. about that. And it can also conspire 
to stop you from reading and stop you from engaging and stop you from keeping up. And I long ago realized I can't keep up with all of this stuff. So um, as a connector, I was happy to have John's help in this way. And I'm delighted to be connected with you. And likewise, now tell, uh... Uh, what's the title of your book? When is it coming out? It's oh, called um, There's No Appropriate Emoji. And it is coming out um, putatively on May 15th from Mad Hat Press, small but awesome press. And it is short stories that um, some are individual short stories that I wrote. Others are collaborations. And the collaborations are with Kelly Haramis, that's my wife, and some uh, other small press writers, Stacey Levine, Chris Mazza, Megan Milks, Lance Olson, and then there are images from Andy Olson and an artist named Tim Guthrie. I had the really amazing opportunity to be a writer on a project Tim did called the Museum of Alternative History, which was in Omaha a couple years ago. This was before Trump and fake news, but it's all, all about that stuff. So it would be 3D printed skulls and I would write the jacket copy, but the jacket copy was all fictional. And I wanted to include some of that in the book because so much of what I want to talk about is that very slippery boundary between the real and just the putatively real. So it is, um, that's the project. And um, I probably did it over 10 years and, you know, cobbling together a few moments here and there because life conspires to stop you from writing. No, but that's incredibly exciting. Um, now, one of the things, and 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 your mention of Mad Hat books kind of gives me some kind of a, a segue to my um, to my next question, which is more about sort of the um, uh, amazing variety of publishing entities that yeah. there are, and you know people talk about indie press, but really it's it's so fragmented um, that it does it a disservice because there there's just so i mean there seem to be i mean there well i mean at the most basic level there's there's academic press um mm -hmm. there's uh, uh foundation supported like presses that basically exist because they get money from the ford foundation and places like that right and then there's like and now books which you were associated with yeah. um which seems to me like almost like a, a sort of a combination of foundation and publishing company. And can you talk a little bit about that and, 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 yeah. and what's, what's that ecosystem like? So it is a um, very tiny ecosystem and system may be a little more grandiose. It has a long and interesting history. So the and now literary festival has had maybe seven, 10 different incarnations and it started at University of Notre Dame in 2004, um, was at Lake Forest College, I want to say in 06, has been in Paris at the Sorbonne, has been at the, again at the University of Notre Dame, UC San Diego, um, Boulder, a couple different places, and largely a conference of academically connected people who are interested in, you know, these very fraught terms, you know, air quotes, innovative writing or innovative narrative. And it is a gathering of a group of like-minded folks. And I'm hoping it'll happen again because every couple of years, somebody sort of takes it up. Because I was involved in um, hosting the second conference and therefore the first one where it became a series. I worked with Steve Thomasula at Notre Dame, who was the founder. 
to do a couple anthologies, which were, you know, the best of in that particular moment, it was 2008-ish, um, innovative and experimental work. Then for a number of years, we had a prize that was donor funded here at Lake Forest College called the Plonsker Prize, which was a first book prize of about $10,000 in a um, kind of um, experimental, innovative, again, air quotes, narrative, um, usually with an external judge. And these books are distributed by Northwestern University Press. But we haven't done all that much in the last few years. One, just because I've been busy in my administrative role. But I do hope to return to that and Lake Forest College Press, which does some Chicago-oriented books um, about Chicago transit. There's one called uh, Beyond Burnham, Beyond the Plan of Chicago, another one called Terminal Town, about how people get to Chicago. You know, how do you get here and where the line ends? So I've always found these projects to be interesting and ways that I can do what John Madera does even more effectively than me, support small press and new voices. But anybody who's you know, worked in these things know that they can also take their toll over time because life conspires to stop you from writing. And if you're publishing or running podcasts, that's all you know, the time you don't have to make your own art. So I think we all go in places in our career where we're, um, doing literary citizenship, or then maybe we retreat for a while. And I think there's phases of that that come and go. But do you, do you think that, um, that ecosystem of, and I come back to the phrase, even though there may, <laughs> the system may be overstated. Like microclimate, microclimate. Yeah, well, all right, that's fine. Do you think that the microclimate of these sort of foundation supported publishers yeah. um, is evolving and creating space for people who, you know, may not be able to make a full living from this, but it would maybe support a portion of their time. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that the small press scene is vibrant and wonderful, and I um, admire so many of the books that tiny presses come out, and I admire the ability of people to work in those publishing and editorial roles, particularly when they're really tiny and they don't have enough to sort of pay people and they're off to the side. The fact that anybody does that over a decade or more is just an amazing testament to the care and concern that they show for um, interesting work. For the slightly larger versions of these press that may have university or foundation support, yeah, they're more like going concerns. And I think for some writers, they are really home and they're home in a way that's much better than a large New York house where the compromises one has to make in terms of audience or length or style um, turn it into a product. That doesn't mean there aren't wonderful things coming out from the major presses, of course there are. There's also garbage. And the same thing is true conversely for the small press world. Not every book you get in the mail from a small press is really going to be wonderful or interesting. It has all the same problems. But wow, am I glad that those other channels exist on the lower end of the dial? Because that's what I like to listen to the most. By the way, and the last uh, uh, really um, serious question yeah. I have for you. Uh, at what point, I mean, so as I was, you know, doing research for this podcast, um, I was uh, frustrated uh, in my usual routes um, because 
Um, I couldn't find you on LinkedIn. I couldn't find you on Twitter. I couldn't find you on Facebook. Um, did you decide I'm not going to be on social media or did it just sort of, someone came to you and said, hey, you want to join Facebook? And you were like, nah. And are you, in other words, was it sort of organic or was it sort of piecemeal? I, you know, it's so interesting because like so much of the accordion of one's feelings that we talk about, it's changed over time. I got kind of dragged in the Facebook, but pretty early on. And um, I was very active on it for a number of years. I got very involved in some local political issues in a town I lived in, in Chicago's North Shore. And, you know, Facebook was the main artery to connect with that in so many ways. I had um, early on, you know, hundreds of Twitter followers in the early days of Twitter when that seemed like a big deal. And somewhere along the line, I just realized it's that, you know, I only have decades to live that I was not getting anything really meaningful from the engagements. And I recognize the sacrifice, right? Because there's this narrative that says, if you want to be an author and if you want things, you have to build up these followings and you have to maintain them and you have to interact with other people. And I think part of me said, because I was no longer interested in that um, dangled reward, which like is at the end of a rainbow, I thought, well, even if I spend all of this time doing this, I'm so far away from what's at the end of the rainbow, which I don't actually want because I'm not sure I believe in that particular rainbow anymore. What am I doing? I'd rather take a walk, take a bike ride. I still read the news. I still check in once in a while, but I am so much happier to not actively be on Facebook and Twitter. That doesn't mean I won't change my mind in the future. You know, if something interesting emerges where I want to play with it in a different way, I'll go back. So I'm not like dispositionally against it. But I definitely didn't want to feel the obligation to spend yeah. the time doing it. But that comes from a place of privilege. I'm a tenured full professor at this college where I'm now an administrator. But when I'm done in this role, I return to my job as an administrator. I'm really lucky. I don't have to do that to build a thing to make a living. And I get that that is a completely um, a situation that many people are not in. Yeah, I, I don't think that... Um... I don't think there are that many people who are on social media and wish they could get off, just to reassure you. I think that most people are involved in social media pretty much to the extent that they want, even if they complain about it sometimes. Because yeah. there's nobody holding a gun to my head saying, you know, and, and I like you, well, I mean, I, I guess um, being on social media is part of my uh, day job, but um, so I guess um, there is a certain amount of gun to my head about that, but um, I certainly do more um, on the personal side um, than um, that no, no, that no one would, would care about if, if I stopped doing it. So it's a choice for me. Um, do you spend a lot of time on it? No. I, I spend um, I spend time um, that uh, I wouldn't be able to do anything else with. I, I mean, uh, so there's a certain amount of professional work I have to do mm -hmm. on it, which is fine. That's part of my day job. Um, but um, my personal time on um, Facebook and LinkedIn um, is usually um, when I'm in the bathroom. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't bring my laptop with me. So um, I, I could be reading, but it's not very comfortable. So social media on my phone is just about right. I understand. And you know, what I did is I felt because I'm a kind of frenetic person where I always want to move around and do something. I'm very bad at just sitting still. 
I swapped looking on Twitter for just playing chess online. Chess.com <laughs> on my phone. A friend of mine from graduate school is like, play chess? I was like, yeah, I'll play chess. And I usually have a couple games going and I'm so much happier. I'm like, you know, I'm in an interaction with somebody. I don't even know them. I don't have to talk to them. It's like, you know, rook, I'm moving my rook and there's something exciting about that. So one of the things I always like to ask, and I'm sure you've noticed, what is your relationship to physical books that oh, you own? Totally. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked. So um, I love to cut books into different shapes. And so I take discards from the library and I take like a, I run them through a jigsaw. I'll try and remember to send you um, a website where I had years ago, some of them, I called them busted books. But for books, I totally write in all my books and it is in a nonsensical chicken scratch that no one will ever understand. I circle a word, I put a line here, my annotation. So my books are dog-eared, there's spills on them. I take them everywhere. I am in a relationship with the books. Books are physical objects. They are plastic. They're words on a page. They're material that goes back to the Burroughs Geisen thing. And um, I like to mess with them. So um, when you say unintelligible chicken scratch, yeah. do you mean that you yourself can't read your handwriting? Or totally. is it un Okay. My, then my handwriting is like illegible to me. And so I'll make a note and I'll come back and I'll be like, what is that word? I almost rarely go back. I find the act of writing something down, that tactile interaction is really what I'm looking for. I'm not doing it for the future. So I may make a mark and I'll never look at that mark again, or I may, but I'm not really making notes for a version of my future self. I'm engaging in a relationship in the present. So when you go back and you reread um, Thomas Pynchon's Against the Day for the third time, um, you, you'll, you'll come across something that you wrote and you won't be able to de decipher it. Yeah, or it will be, even if I can, it'll be meaningless to me because even if I can recognize the word, right, time is erasing the importance of what I wrote, just like it's erasing the legacy of all the writing that you and I and most everybody else does as well. It's marks in the snow and then um, they're getting cleared away. Um, if you hadn't become a writer or yeah. wanted to become a writer, what would your dream vocation have been? Yeah, I, this will sound like a cop out, but I honestly don't know because I sort of think I, I'm, the things that I'm against, earnestness, I'm against the earnest, I'm against nostalgia, I'm against sort of, you know, dreaming too much about the way things could be. I'm more interested in trying to make do with what is actually happening. There were times in my life when I was young, oh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a singing scientist. The problem is I'm not good at either of those. Wait a minute, hold on a second. Yeah, that, you know, you just went from, oh, uh, what a disappointment to, oh, wait, this is a contender for the most interesting answer. Singing scientist, yeah. Singing I, scientist. Like when I was like eight and nine, my parents, I'd be like, I will be a singing scientist because I love to sing. My voice ain't great. My science skills are, you know, mediocre at best. So I wanted to be a chef and then I realized I didn't. And sometimes I don't even know if I want to do the things that I'm doing. But the most interesting thing about life for me is that I don't really, some people I think as they get older, become more comfortable with themselves. Like they learn more about themselves. I really don't like cilantro, which I hate. It's the devil weed. I don't want to eat it. But 
they're like, I really am this type of person. And for me, it's the opposite. I'm so interested to learn what I'm going to feel next or what I'm going to think. And it can all be exploded. Like I could be doing something totally different a year from now. And that wouldn't surprise me at all. Unlikely that I will because I'm on this sort of career track, but I don't want to get fixed into ideas. And so I don't even really daydream about the alternate so much. I try not to. I'm just like, I'm in it. And um, I want to be excited about the impracticality and the impossibility of predicting anything beyond the immediate, which I know can also sound like a cop out. So now I know that there's not really necessarily a direct relationship between parenting and writing. Yeah. But you're a parent, right? I'm a parent. So how do you how how do you teach anti-earnestness? Yeah. Um, so my daughter and I have a ton. She keeps a notes file on her phone, and we just come up with ridiculous ideas that we play around. So today, when I was driving her to school this morning, right before I came in here, somehow we got on the topic of a new kid cereal we were making up called Sugar Socks. They're in the shape of socks but they're made of sugar and their mascot is like a leprechaun, but like sock figure. And the car, the, the commercial is you come downstairs and your brother's like, what's for breakfast? And he's got the box of rocks cereal. It just looks like rocks, but they're sugar rocks. And all we did in the five minute drive between my house and the high school was just like riff on this. And yesterday it was something else. So we'll probably never talk about it again. To me, that's like the beauty of life, right? It's just having those immediate conversations. We're laughing. We're getting a kick out of something, but that something doesn't have to last beyond. And when people invest this idea that I'm making something for the ages, this is something people have to read and hold on to. Um, I just see that as so far away from the way things actually happen that um, we just got to hold on to the moment. The moment is all there is. So is that a product partly of the era we're living in? I mean, if you're Ellie Wiesel, yeah. Um, and you're writing about the Holocaust. Yeah. You're probably writing about something that you think people would hold on to. Definitely. You've, you've got a didactic function, right? You're keeping the memory alive at night of something very, very important. But I mean, if you look at Spiegelman's Mouse, that's taking it on in a different way. Or a writer I was honored to know, you may not know, a guy named Raymond Fetterman, who always wrote about his experiences in World War II differently. He told the same story over and over from a thousand different um, perspectives, and he called it laughterature rather than yeah. literature. And I love all three of the, the Holocaust writers that we just spoke about. They all approach it differently. And yes, I think when something terrible happens, we all have a responsibility to bear witness. But that's not all writing, um, and that's not the situation everybody finds themselves in. I'm Michael Hickens, and you've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. If you want to know more about me, please visit my website at www.michaelmissing.com.